Amen. Well, today we want to have a, a special uh, service for you. Uh, today is May 28th, 2017. The title of today's message is The Battlefield Update. With as much as we have going on lately, with as many battles as we are waging on many different fronts, we wanted to come together and in a united way give you an update on what's going on here in the battlefield that we call life-changing ministries and the, and the fields that God has given us to work. So we have a few slides that we'd like to go over here and uh, just encourage you by what's going on, to challenge you, to let you uh, catch your breath, to, to motivate you to do a lot of different things today. But we're going to hear from God's Word, and uh, you're going to, I think you're going to be incredibly blessed by the overall view of what's going on here in our midst. Amen? Let's take a look at a few things uh, on the positive note. Because you know when you're in the midst of battle, you need to be reminded what you're fighting for, and also the good things that are being accomplished. Let's go to the next slide. So, first and foremost, we got some items of praising Jesus about. Uh, King's Harvest Fellowship. They are in process of purchasing land and acquiring a facility for their own sanctuary. And it will be the site this coming October where we'll host the One Association meeting. Amen? Amen. Submission Ministries. Uh, they're laying down the foundation, a little port, literally pouring the concrete on their school of ministry. I don't know how much of you have known about the testimony about this, but it has been a fight all along the way that God has had his hand on giving victory after victory to get to this point. Uh, the Rising Church, they're inside their new building and still doing some minor uh, upgrades as well. But we're celebrating with them the goodness of God and giving them their own place uh, for worship as well. In New Life Fellowship, they're growing every single day, every single month. Each time we make a visit, it's like we see an entirely new church that's it's unfolding before us. And they're becoming active in missions, supporting the very works that we're also uh, initiating and starting here as well. The Vincents, uh, we, we Skype with these guys once a week, and it's beautiful to see the, the plan and will of God unfold in this ministry in Indonesia, and uh, they're starting new work, venturing out into neighboring uh, areas and regions in Indonesia, and one of the biggest blessings that's come around here recently is that they're going to get their approval on a kitas. This is a visa that will allow them to stay in Indonesia and not have to travel back and forth every six months and stay out of the country, then come back in, and they can stay in Indonesia and be near about a permanent resident for quite some time. The Brassos are currently uh, standing in Peru uh, right now, and uh, they're working towards a full-time work in Peru. Uh, the Sutherlands are celebrating, or have a, not celebrating, <laughs> a 10-year visa <laughs> to further their work in India. Uh, just as a show of hand, kind of a, a small battlefield update, who has applied for a visa to India and been denied? So we have, I think, three, three hands so far. There's maybe one or two that aren't here has been denied already. This is a, a major milestone that enables the work of God to continue to flow out of LCM to the various parts of India. And the Sutherlands are on that list. And for LCM, continuing forward with Turkey, blazing the trail and pioneering means of uh, ministry in that area. Uh, with Eric and the rest of the guys who've been there before. Amen? Amen. That's something to praise about. You know, where there is no conflict, there can be no crown. Let me show you some of the areas that were in conflict. There's 12 works on five continents that we 
are actively supporting on a monthly basis and have visited in the last 12 months and all but one of them we visited in the last six months. That is quite the battlefield when it comes down to it. When Romans 8.37 says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, when you're staring at that map right now, let me give you a perspective just for a second. A husband and wife and a couple kids, none of whom are out of kindergarten yet, starting a church in the living room that nobody wants to come to and everybody ridiculed. And there's 12 places on the planet right now that are depending monthly upon this ministry where we're going to become the 12 springs that feed the 70 palm trees of Exodus 15 in Elium and the nations. What we do here makes a difference there. That's not some marketing campaign. We're not selling you bricks in our building or some other ridiculously carnal thing. We are trying with all of our heart to set an example of what it is to give your life for the Lord and to do it as a community. Amen. Does that encourage you? Every time you walk through these doors and you begin to worship and the Lord moves you, you get prophecies about your children and your future. You get teaching about your life's direction. You get prepared for works of service. This is what we have in mind, and we're not through yet. Amen. Amen. Could you show the next slide, Joy? Not only has the Lord been speaking to us uh, as a congregation for a long time, let me ask this. How many people in this room have been at this church for less than a year? Anybody been here less than a year? Okay. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, anybody been here less than three years? Everybody who's been here less than three years? Okay. Uh, if you've, let me, I'm going to change the question now. If you've been here for four or more years, raise your hand. Okay, so... We have an incredible group of people, some who have just been here months, some years, some of us for a long time. The Lord has been speaking to this body of believers for, for a while. And what you heard on May 10th, which was a Wednesday night, there was actually a vision that was given. And in the vision, uh, what Pastor Eric shared with us was, was this picture that you see here on the screen. On the first level... The, the foundational level, there were five pillars. Five is the representative number of grace. grace in the Bible. Five pillars. This is about the one life that matters. One life coming into our fellowship. What, we're what I'm trying to do here is remind you of what the Lord has just spoken to us in the past few days, two and a half weeks ago. But I'm trying to show it to you as it relates to what God has been speaking to us all along. That His plan throughout time has been consistent. His plan in this body of, of believers is not only consistent, but it's growing. He's not going to undo anything that he's done in the past, but our understanding of it is growing just as we all are in our faith. Amen? Amen. We have this first level, this foundational of three tiers of grace that represented the one life coming into our ministry and being radically changed. <laughs> our name is, is the correct name, Life Changing Ministries. How many of you had your life changed by being here? Amen. The people on this stage have, can also say that. We've had our life changed by the power of God, and that's why we're here. On a second level, we had three different pillars involved in that level. And on that level, we understood that it was about families coming in and being healed, 
families coming in and learning how to properly govern in their own home, and families learning how to be a part of what the God is doing here and being able to help us govern and leadership here of this church. And then on the top level, the third level, there were two pillars that were there. Where do these pillars come from? This is the picture that was shown, that there were two pillars. And we understood that to mean about us going, that we were supposed to send to the nations. We understand in our church, and we've said it this way, that we will go in twos and we govern in threes. So this is in exact in keeping with what we've been preaching about, what we've been teaching about for years, and it's come to us even in a, in a beautiful picture. And the truth is, is we're excited to see all the ways that this will come out in real life, that this will be able to work out, that it will be able to be seen in our everyday life here at this church, here in your lives, here in your families, here in you as individuals. Amen? Amen. Give us that next slide. In Ezekiel 34, the fourth verse, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. As pastors, we can confidently say that strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the injured, bringing back the strays, searching for the lost, this is our goal. That's the foundational element. That's the grace at work at the bottom of that spear that you just saw there. It's been written on our walls. Uh, it's highlighted in our Bibles, and it's what we discuss all of the time. That is going to be a part of this message today, but we're experiencing that. There are families that will remain in this church probably for the rest of their calling because we need help doing these things. They're the pillars and the foundation of this ministry. And it's, it's the heart of God. It's how you express grace to the lives that are being changed. So in the second level, where Pastor was describing uh, governance and seeing three pillars, here this passage relates well to it. In Micah 6.8, how many of you are familiar with Micah 6.8? Okay. Put your hands back down. Raise your hand if you have this written on a wall somewhere in your house or on a refrigerator or something. <laughs> it's a pretty common one. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It turns out that these three areas, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly are the function of the Older Testament period. When we say act justly, this is what the law is aimed at. You can hear that in verses like Deuteronomy 5.29, where your heart, God sighs and says, oh, that their hearts were inclined to follow me. It's the reason that the law was given. When we move to love mercy, love mercy is what the prophets were aimed at. You can hear that in verses like Hosea 6, 6, where I've desired mercy and not sacrifice. You, the writings, what they're aimed at more than anything else is how you walk humbly with God. This is why Psalm 25 in verse 9 says, He guides the humble in what is right. He teaches them His ways. In Micah 6, 8, we see a kind of summary of the way the Older Testament is structured. And more than that, what we really find is that if we do our work as pastors on the front row, on the, on the 
bottom of that spear with the pillars of grace, then we also have to govern in this way with a love for justice, a love for mercy. Have you ever felt those two things in tension with one another? Justice and mercy. Don't you tend to talk about justice when someone else has done something and mercy when you have done something? Absolutely. Oh, now, y'all not awake this morning. <laughs> How many of you get a speeding ticket and then just love the justice of God? I mean, you got the speeding ticket and you are super excited that you get to pay a penalty because it's just. Yeah, nobody in here's hands are going up. How many of you immediately think of reasons that you deserve mercy? How many of you have never gotten a speeding ticket? Raise your hand if you've never gotten a speeding ticket in this church. Now put your hand down if you don't drive. Leave your hand up if you drive. Well, I should have had y'all driving the church bus. That would have saved us some legal issues. Being able to look back on acting justly and loving mercy, being able to see the tension between those things ought to create in us something. Humility. Because the, the reality is very, very often, no matter how hard we try, we lean too heavy in one direction. The churches in general are mercy crazy right now. Nobody cares about the justice of God. Nobody talks about holiness. Grace is a license for immorality. But at the same token, if we become justice heavy, if, if all we care about is prosecuting sin, which one of us will be able to stand through a service? Wow. So we have some things we want to share with you today. We're going to get into Micah 6.8 in a big way. But before we do, Pastor Wade's got another slide for us. On that third level, the tip of the spear was us having two pillars about going. Everybody say going. going. If you've been here for any length of time at all, you understand that this church is about going. We're expecting everyone to put one foot in front of another and go exactly where God has sent you. There are many of you here in this room who will go to, and you have gone to places across this world. This is an, we pulled up two verses for you this morning. First was in Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. This is later on in the chapter after the Lord has already sent them out, how many? Two by two. So in Luke 10, 19, it says this, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all. Everybody say all. all. I love words like this in the Bible. I love it. Because in case you're wondering if you're the exception, you're not. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all. Everybody say all. all. Yeah, that's not everybody yet. We're going to... Here, does this help? Here, I'll stand up for you. I think if you all see us sitting down, we're, we're kind of seated in our hearts here. I have given you authority. Just read this with me. Everybody look at one of the screens and read it with me. It says this. I have yeah. given, given you authority, authority to, to trample, trample on snakes, snakes and, scorpions and scorpions and to, to overcome, overcome all the power of the enemy. enemy. Nothing, Nothing will harm you. you. This is what we want to do. We're not just saying go. We're not just saying, you know, let's give it your best attempt. We're saying go and be victorious when you go. Because the one who has created us is with us and he's sending us. That we must go in his power because he has given authority. We know that Matthew 28, 20 says the same thing. He's given us, he, because of his authority, we're supposed to go into all the world. John 14, 12 also says something that's important. I tell you the truth. Anyone, there, there's those, one of those words again. Everybody say anyone. Anyone. Huh. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. 
Um, do you know who's speaking here? This is Jesus Christ himself. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Well, what did he do? Well, that's what, why we study the word so diligently is to find out exactly what he did because that is laying out for us what we must do. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. How many of you folks in the room are doing greater things than Jesus right now? Okay, we cannot stay in the tension of hearing the scripture and it pricking our hearts by going, golly, and never do what we're supposed to do. If the word of God says it, this is what we are supposed to be striving for. I tell you the truth. Jesus isn't lying to you. He's not making a joke with you. He's not winking at you and going, you're really not going to do this. I'm just going to make you feel better about yourself by saying this. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. How's your faith today? How's your faith based on what we can see you doing? How, how's that going for you? He will do even greater things than these. Come on, we are a church who wants to do greater things. Amen. Not for our own sake. This is why these are layers on top of each other, aren't they? That we've got to have this layer of grace, these foundational pieces. Why? So that we can grow and understand what it's like to be governed rightly by the Lord. Why? So that you can continue on. So we have Ezekiel 34 that's laying out what, what the job of the church is, what the job of pastors is. Then we go to Micah 6.8 that teaches us how to do this, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Unless we are acting justly, unless we fall in love with mercy, it's going to be difficult for us to go anywhere and walk humbly with the Lord. We've got to walk humbly so that these things we don't go, <laughs> yeah, you know what I just did? You know what I just accomplished? Well, you're being a wretch. Stop. You're being conceited. That's, that's horrible. And we have to fight this tension as well that we don't want to be prideful at all. We want to be humble before the Lord. And we want to be powerful in what he's called us to do. Amen? Amen. We have to do both. We can't ignore either side of this. And this is what our church is about. We're, one of our pillars here, one of the, at the very tip of the sphere, is us sending people to the nations. Amen? Before we leave that topic, say greater. 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 You know, the followers of that pedophile prophet, they say regularly, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. It's translated all of the time on the news media, God is great. That's not what it means. It means our God is greater than your God. That's what it means. It's an it's a expression of dominance is what it actually is. I want you to contrast that with what you are seeing and hearing. You know what our desire is? For your ministry to be greater than ours. Amen. The ministries that have come from this community are outgrowing, outperforming in every way us. That was always the goal. Wait till you see those that are going to come from us in the next year or two years. Uh, the fruit is going to increase not just 30 and 60, but a hundredfold. The tip of the spear, quite honestly, is what we produce. I mean, that is where this ministry becomes powerful. Are you interested in doing the greater things? Yes. Yes. We're interested in you doing that. We sit here now to serve you so that you'll stand on the right platform while you're there. Amen? Amen. Could we catch that next slide? When you see these two things sitting next to each other, pillars of grace and governance, and we could add to it going, but that would be a much bigger slide. 
These scriptures help us. We're going to refer to them regularly today. Because when we're talking about acting justly, that has to do with searching for the lost and bringing back strays. When we're talking about loving mercy, that has to do with the weak, the sick, the injured. The truth is, is it takes an awful lot of acting justly and loving mercy to, uh, to administrate a church. And when you look back on how you have handled the years prior, the weeks prior, the hours prior, it should do nothing but fill you with humility. How many of you wish you knew 10 years ago what you know today? Yeah, anybody's ever been through marriage counseling? You wish you knew then what you know now. I mean, that's, that's just how that works. We're going to pick up in the concepts from Micah 6.8. So we're going to leave this on the screen for you. And um, remember that Micah 6.8 is laid out with justice being like the law, mercy being like the prophets, and the walking humbly being like the writings in your Older Testament. And we want to pick up with you about acting justly. Is that all right? Yes. Is that all right? Yes. Even if it's not all right, it's where we're going. And you got on this flight. So to jump out early is going to be painful. I want to start with you in Acts 17, 31. Say there when you were there. Those of you addicted to the big screen, uh, unaddict yourself right now. Oh, open that book that you have a personal relationship with sitting in your lap. And if you were peering down in an electronic screen, that is not LCM Strong right there. That, that is uh, a new kind of weakness that we love and will strengthen. We, we, will, we will strengthen. We want you to engage the written word of God. Are you in Acts 17? Yes. Amen. In Acts 17, beginning in um, verse 31, let's just say 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world. Say, judge the world. Judge the world. With justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It is an incredible concept that one man will judge both the living and the dead. And how will he do it? With justice, it says. Now, if you think about this, you probably want mercy in your own life, injustice for whoever has wronged you. He is going to judge the world by justice because he acts justly. It's a part of our ministry's desire that we would act justly. That's a heavy uh, toll to carry, isn't it? Do you know in every situation what is right to do? Praise God, we're led by His Spirit and He helps us. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. At the end of our passage there in Acts 17, it closes with this sentence that says, He has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. The proof of Jesus' justice is that He was raised from the dead. Now look at Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 25. Say there when you're there. It says this, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his what? Justice. Let's go back and catch it again. Verse 25, God presented him 
as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His... Justice. Jesus Christ going to the cross, being resurrected from the cross so that He can judge all men is an act of God's justice. Because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, if you were just listening to this, listen, think about how many times he's talking about justice, justice, just, over and over again in these very short verses. Look up in verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are very, very familiar with that passage. How many of us are as familiar with these verses that we just read? Look at verse 26 again. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The entirety of the work on the cross, absolutely it was about His love for mankind. Absolutely. For God so loved the world. Of course it is. And here we see that it was a mark of the justice of the heavens through the man Jesus Christ that He might be able to administer justice. We have to act justly. This is not an easy thing. This is not an easy thing. If, if everything is just a binary choice, then it's either good or it's bad. What happens when things get complicated? Anybody ever have some situations that get complicated in your life? There's no clear, God wants me to do this. You know, the devil's on the other shoulder and he's causing me to do this. If it were that simple, there shouldn't be any of us that ever would ever sin. There shouldn't be any of us ever missing the mark because it would be so glaringly obvious. It gets difficult when we say, Lord, would you show us? We know that we are supposed to act justly. I don't really know what that is in this situation. Lord, would you show us what acting justly look like, looks like? Is, is it, what is it, Lord? We need this because we know and we trust that you came and you died on the cross and you were risen again. Why? To prove justice. He did it to demonstrate his justice at this present time, that the justice would be an outgrowth of everything that we do. Amen? On that note, I was once told by a judge when I asked if he had any advice for us who came into his courtroom later in life. It was a part of a civics project, the time I'm talking about. Other times before a judge, not so much a civics project, more like a civic prosecution. <laughs> but the first time that I stood before a judge, he said, do you have any advice for us before uh, we leave today? He said, yes, when you walk in the courtroom, you're guilty. That's what he told me. Of course, it was traffic court, right? <laughs> the whole point of traffic court is that you pay a fine. I, I want you to grab hold of something while we're talking about the justice of God. If somebody kills your mother, do you want them to get away with it? No. No one will, period, ever. They get away with it in this life. They do not get away with it in the next. Is that comforting to you? Now let's introduce the kind of justice demonstrated. If that person falls head over heels in love with Jesus Christ, then the murder that he committed and the penalty that he committed falls on Jesus so that God's justice may be met. Do you want God's justice in your life? Well, we, we want his blood to cover our sin. Do you extend that justice to others? Isn't that an interesting concept? 
how can you go unprosecuted for your sin and decide to prosecute others for theirs? Drop the microphone. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at a furthering of this demonstration of justice. In, in light of what both pastors have already said, justice is something that we all crave for in one direction from our, ourselves and in a different direction towards us. Would you ever think that God would demonstrate justice by allowing innocence to be murdered? And when doing so, he paid a price. We're going to look at this in 1 Timothy 2. Let's start in verse 3. We'll read through verse 6. There. Is everybody else there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants how many men? All men. All men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a what? Ransom. ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. When you give a ransom, what is usually the condition? A hostage situation. Every single one of us are held hostage, prisoner to sin. And in demonstrating his justice, God allowed the toning blood of his innocent son, Jesus, to be shed in a murderous form so that we could have the ransom paid for ourselves to be bought out of ransom and brought back into his kingdom. If you sit here today and your life has not fallen underneath that ransomed blood of Jesus, there is still a penalty that hangs over your head, but it doesn't have to. The point of that we're driving towards in Ezekiel 34 and in Micah 6, 8, is that God has a destination He wants to bring you to, and that is a destination of reconciliation and restoration back to Him. We celebrate the blood of Jesus that has paid our ransom, and that's why in worship we can lift our hands, we can lift our heads, guilt-free. Those of you who have had this blood atoned for and sprinkled on your conscience, wasn't there a difference that first night when you were born again, you laid down and there was no longer a haunting guilt that kept you awake. And when you began to pray, it was no longer a majorative of, Lord, forgive me for this, forgive me for that, 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 and that. But instead, it's thank you, Father. There was an intimacy of relationship instead of a condemnation based on your own sin. To have given your life as a ransom for all men. How do you feel like when you pay for something and you don't get it? Hey, <laughs> tonight, all of you walk into Ruth Chris on Richmond and tell them that that 22-ounce filet is yours. Like, you'd be excited about that, wouldn't you? How excited would you be if you bought that for everybody in this room? And not 90% of them did not go. And these are trivial, worldly things. One of the reasons Jesus was as upset with the leaders of the first century as he was is not only did they not enter the kingdom, but they kept others from doing it themselves. In everything that we do, we want to demonstrate God's justice. Think about this as it relates to the left side of that screen. Searching for the lost. Why? Because justice demanded blood for their sin. 
And that blood has been shed for every single one of them. And now we want to bring the lost into the saved storehouse. Amen? Amen. Why the strays? I mean, they already had their chance, right? Because he didn't just die for everybody's singular sin. He died for everybody's sins, plural, period. And when someone is straying, they're in danger of losing what they have gained. Doesn't the Lord's great sacrifice and his great justice demand that we search for the lost and bring back the strays? Have you ever found yourself being kinder to the lost than the strays? Because this pastor has. Like the lost, they don't know better. The strays, they should know better, right? Like I don't, like I shouldn't know better. Huh? I want to show you an unusual passage. Turn to Revelation 19. All of you have heard this uh, out of the Brownsville Revival, if you're old enough to remember that. Lyndall Cooley made songs famous about this. Uh, if, if that's not your thing, uh, this is one of those passages from Revelation that most people get familiar with. Revelation 19, 11. There. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. With what? Justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. What an unusual apparel to return to the earth in. Right? Somebody shout out, what, whose blood is on his robe? That's really interesting. I heard three answers. My blood, the wicked, and the lamb. Well, can I assure you Jesus' own blood is not staining his garment? He's done with that. Can I assure you that the saved, your blood is not staining his garment? He died to redeem you. You know, Isaiah 63 says this so clearly. Write it down. You can read it after church. They saw the Lord approaching from a direction. He had been treading out the winepress. His garments were splattered in the blood of the wicked. And he was appalled that no one was righteous other than himself. His own arm had worked it out. Get this picture of a just God. When he comes back, he covers himself in the blood of those that resisted him. His blood, their, their blood is staining his garment. Moab, Ammon, all of the nations that surround Israel, he has trodden out the winepress of God's fury. Do you know why? Because he paid for justice. He wanted justice. He wanted a people redeemed. So much so that your sin he was willing to die for. But if you would not accept that and lived in rebellion to him, then he was going to take your life as an enemy of God. Well, let that settle in for a minute when we talk about act justly. That the king of the universe, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is covered in someone's blood when he returns. Those who would not act justly after all he had done. Is there a serious cry for holiness in the word? Yes. 
There is a serious cry for holiness in the word. Revelation uh, 19, 11 through 15 goes on to say he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He is coming to save those who accepted his judge justice. And he is coming to trample down those who will not. Man, what side of that do you want to be on? You know, the messianic pictures in the Bible are incredible. Most people that go to church, they never actually get into them. You may have heard Isaiah 25 at a funeral at some point. Something along the lines of on this mountain who will hold a rich feast of uh, aged wine and choice meats. On this mountain he will uh, destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. Right? Does that sound vaguely familiar to you from Isaiah 25? If you didn't notice the aged wines and the choice meats, Jesus is neither a vegetarian nor is he a prohibitionist. He drinks wine and he eats meat. If you follow that passage down, do you know that he is standing on the head of his enemies? Not four verses after that. Do you know what is under their head? A pile of dung. That is a picture of the return of Christ. I challenge you, go read it. When we talk about acting justly, we're as serious as could be. But what a heavy task. You know, how important is it that we get this right? Amen. Go to Romans chapter 11. We'll read verse 32. The weight of justice is something that we have to constantly consider, much like a sword that has two edges. It is justice outward, and it is justice back towards us as well. Let us therefore consider the kindness and sternness of God. Well, let's read here to Romans eleven thirty-two, and see another facet. For God has bound all men. Everybody say all men. All men. Over to disobedience so that, so that he may have mercy on them all. You hear the repetitious term of, of all, God's inclusionary of, of all mankind, that put it in this light, right? I'm a father of four girls. And they may not know it at the moment, but... Let's say I put them in a situation purposely that every single one of my four girls would ultimately fail. And I knew it because I knew their character. Now, they're all different, but I would put them each in a situation that they would fail for the intent and purpose that I could show mercy to every single one of them. You know, the goal is that we act justly, but it in and of itself alone is incomplete. And it lacks the full heart of God. Once again, reflecting back here, Ezekiel 34, that God's heart is that he wants to strengthen the weak. If we just stopped at the one point in Romans 11:32 and said God has bound all men to disobedience, then what, what, what justice really is there? But the next step in justice that we're going to begin to look at is the extent to which justice is pointing, and that being his mercy as seen here on this slide. Let's turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 
continues on in exactly what Pastor Matt was just saying. Let, let's take a look at the screen once you get there. We're talking about acting justly. I, even as I was sitting here, I was looking at the screen and realizing how that even the categories in Ezekiel 34, the tasks that are given to us, are actually a, a form of, of, of God's justice. What is the difference between strengthening the weak and healing the sick? Aren't you weak when you're sick? Apparently God knows that there's clear differences. And He wants that He's got a different aim. He's, the whole aim is that we're going to act justly. Heal the sick. Bind up the injured. If you're, if you're glossing over these and not giving them much time, they start sounding like they're in much larger categories. Our God apparently knows the difference between those who are stray and those who are lost. And it is our job, our function as the body of Christ, especially those of us in leadership, that we are trying to do these things to show that God is a just God, that He indeed understands the difference. That He can, while all men are given over to disobedience, it is for He wants the mercy, He wants the grace so that they can all come to Him. In Psalm 19, He actually gives us this to help us. Look at verse 12. Psalm 19 and verse 12. It says this, Who can discern His errors? Forgive my hidden faults. He's actually giving us a justice, a just look at what sin does. Verse 13, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. These three categories here, errors and hidden faults. I, I, didn't, even know I, I didn't know I was doing it. It was an error. I was wrong. We go on from there, eventually there has to be something in us that continues to grow if we're ever going to move to willful sins. God holds us accountable even for our errors, ladies and gentlemen. Even if you make a mistake and you think it was of the pure, purest intention. The problem is, is that we are terrible at judging our own hearts. Yeah. I, no, I had pure intention. You better be careful that you're not already moved into willful sin and you're blaming it on pure intentions. We do not have pure intentions. Not without Christ working in us, in and of ourselves, not one person in here. And if you think that you're different, you've already moved on to at least phase two here, and you're already in willful sins, but you're not even aware enough. You're not even aware of God's justice enough for you to stand rightly and allow His Word and His Spirit to judge your heart. Willful sins, Lord, keep me from these, these things that are hidden. God forbid that we have things that are hidden in our lives because it moves us to willful sins because we eventually deceive ourselves. We can, we can blame it on the enemy. We can blame it on spiritual forces. Yes, those are working at you. But the truth is, we all end up doing what we want to do. And if we want to deceive ourselves, if, if I want to think that I look better in this shirt than I really do, I'm going to find the right angle. Why do you think I wore black today, folks? I wanted to look slimmer. Amen. Um, Have you ever seen a picture of Big Bird? <laughs> look, in Psalm 19, pastor taught this to me some years ago. The question is, whose sins are hidden? Forgive my hidden faults. What does that mean? I think one of the possibilities, at the very least, is that they've been hidden from you. You know, have you ever just caught your mind in an incredibly bizarre place? Like, watch this. I'm thinking of fish hooks. Well, how did I get to thinking of fish hooks? 
I'm sitting on a plane, and the man in front of me seems to love fishing more than his wife, and the woman to his left had an earring that resembled the fish hook, and so my mind's on trout. I mean, is that ridiculous? But that kind of stuff happens all of the time, doesn't it? Have you ever looked to see how you ended up in great transgression? There was a point when you decided to sin. There was a point where you're like, I know it's sin and I'm going to do it anyway. That's wicked. But that's not where it started. It started with something that you thought was acceptable, that you thought you could get away with, you thought was okay, wasn't really bending the rule. I mean, it might kind of not. No, I, it's okay. Uh, there are spiritual forces that are at work trying to kill us. And our own flesh is against us. Somewhere in this process, you always move from what you thought was acceptable to what you now know is unacceptable. And it's starting to rule over you. And you end up in a place that is great transgression. Say that with me. Great, great transgression. transgression. Now, this tends to be when there is no way to hide this. Does that make sense? Like a lot of you get away with willful sin. I mean, you get away with it regularly. When it hits great transgression, because the Lord loves you, he usually drags it out into the sunlight. Because if he doesn't, you might not survive it. Does that make sense? It started in deception. You had a moment of clarity and willful sin where you're like, this is wrong, but I'm, yeah, I'm just going to do it. And you end, back, you end up in a, uh, a more deceived state than you started. You start thinking that you can do whatever you want to and it's okay. God doesn't see it. The book of Micah is actually about that. The leaders were saying no harm's going to come to us. The prophets were saying God will not let us be punished. Look, it's been going on like this forever. And Micah says the spirit of God is on me to declare to you your sin. I mean, that is what the book is actually about. But let's remember how the book finishes. This is important for the culture of our church. Go to Micah 7 and pick up in verse 18. Say there when you're there. If your neighbor's not there, help them get there. If they're using an electronic Bible, mock them a little bit, but forgive them. Who is a God like you? You know what's crazy? That's basically what Micah means. Who is like God? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Transgression is not when you're just thinking about doing something wrong. Transgression is not a slight error. This is when you've moved from what was hidden to you to what was willful to it ruling over you, to there is no way to hide it. You're going to be judged before the whole world. That's where they were. He was prophesying about the captivities to come. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is he forgiving? His inheritance. So were they lost or had they strayed? <laughs> yes. They had strayed to the point where they would be lost if they were not broken over their sin. Yeah, in this book, he clearly defines that he's going to kill those who will not acknowledge their sin. But those who grieve over it, he's going to restore higher than they've ever been. Amen. 
All the nations of the world are going to stream to them. He speaks such tender things to them that we literally name the town that Jesus is born in in this book. I mean, he speaks such amazing things to them that the plan to overthrow the Antichrist is in this book. At the height of their failure, do you know what God was speaking to them? About their restoration. Because that's the heart of our God. He's a restoring God. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and will show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in the days of long ago. Remember that in the prophets, they proclaimed and pointed out sin. Amen? Amen. We need to point out error where we see it. We need to because if you don't, it might rule over and the people die. But what did the prophets always follow it with? Always there are promises of restoration. The books of prophecy are ultimately about mercy. And they're about mercy because that's who God is. That's what he desires. It is a wicked and sinful heart that sits in your own sin. And it is an even more wicked heart that puts somebody else's sin on them forever. And let's ask something. If Jesus has forgiven something... How long do you think that you can get away with not forgiving it? How long can you be out of agreement with God? I mean, is it the person that you put on trial then? Or is it Jesus' judgment that you put on trial? There is an amazing capacity to deceive in the human being. We see other people's sin with perfect clarity. And we don't see our sin with perfect clarity. That's an incredible thing. One of the things that the Word does for us is it gives us an accurate look of our life. Christian, you need to be very careful that when you look in the Word, you're looking in the Word for how it reflects your life. Can I tell you that we have a church full of people who are going to try to do good things? You're going to attempt great things for God. Do you know what that means for some of us? We're going to fail greatly. We're going to think it was God and it wasn't. We're going to stand up and swing and we're going to miss. We're going to hit the foul ball. Sometimes we're going to hit the ball so foul that it knocks somebody out and there's no way that you can just live with it. Except that you serve a God who pardons sin. What condition did he find you in? Some of you sit in your sin right now. I can feel it in the room. You know... If we were not preaching about mercy, I could call it out for you. If that would help you, I could do that. But I found out that God doesn't do that. He does sometimes. Most of the time, he's patient with you. He's wanting people to come to repentance. You start to figure out that not everything that you discern are you supposed to point out. Because if you did, the people would be so overwhelmed with themselves. Church... What kind of environment do we want? We want something that is like the kingdom. What is the kingdom made of? The kingdom is made of those who have been brought from death into life. Okay, The kingdom we're at war with prosecutes sin. The kingdom that we're at war with 
points to every error in your life and tells you that you are unworthy to serve God. Am I wrong? I mean, his name means accuser. It is very, very important that we do not do his work for him. Don't you think? We serve a God who pardons. Oh, man, you know what is great about being pardoned? You can't be tried for that crime again. Is that incredible? You know, you think a presidential pardon is a good thing. <laughs> now, I don't want you to get the idea that we're preaching a greasy grace or a license for immorality. We are trying to bring some balance to the idea that when we become aware that somebody has made extraordinary error, that should be tempered by your own knowledge of what you know has occurred in your life that you did not stand on a stage and tell the whole world. Yeah, boy, do you feel how quiet it is in here? Amen. Let's go to Hosea 6.6. 6. This is a central scripture building on the second point in Micah 6.8 of loving mercy. That justice leads you to the point of loving mercy. So everybody say with me. Say love. Love. Mercy. Mercy. Not love wins. Love mercy. Yeah, let's get that straight. So there in, in, or here in your book, uh, in your Bible, in Hosea 6, at the very top, beginning the chapter heading, most of you who have the NIV 84 or, or 2011 even, you'll say Israel unrepentant, right? And it begins by saying, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. The very language that we see here in Ezekiel 34. Is it only God's will to break you into pieces and then let you stay there? No. It is his desire to show in you that he loves mercy. With that in mind, let's go to verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Let me give you an example of what this can look like sometimes in, in your life. That you have a willful or a secret sin the Lord has been dealing with you about. And one of the things that you use to cloak or soothe your conscience is that, let's say you pay tithe, you pay 10%, you give to, to missions and offerings. I'm good with God. Look, I'm demonstrating faithfulness. I'm demonstrating trust in my finances. I'm attending every single meeting. But there's still some, something secret that's going on, and it's warring with your spirit. It's warring with the righteousness that he's trying to stir you into. And then there comes a moment where he allows something to happen that begins to break down that cloak of what you're masking your secret or willful sins with. Because what he desires is not just an outer expression of sacrifice or an outer expression of burnt offerings. He wants the desire to show you mercy and have you acknowledge with your entirety of obedience and all your heart, mind, soul, and strength of who he is, his name, his body of work, his reputation, and his character. Anybody who's ever looked into the justice of God quickly runs to the mercy of God. When you find out that every heavenly being seems to be covered in eyes and nothing is hidden from his sight, 
and that there is a day coming when things that were whispered in private or exposed in public, it'll cause one word to come out of you, mercy. In fact, most of us love scriptures like James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment, and we love the idea of mercy when it's applied to us. In Matthew 9, let's pick up in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What does God's justice demand that he care about? The sick. He's made a ransom for all men. He cares about those that know that they have a problem. When you look at this list in Ezekiel 34, strengthen the weak. Is that spiritual or physical? Yes. Yeah. Some of you get weak physically. You get the flu. Some of you get weak spiritually for much the same reason, but we'll go into that another time. Heal the sick. Sometimes we're praying and in an instant something changes. Bind up the injured. How do you get an injury? Did something traumatic happen? Have you found it more difficult the day that you lost your job, the day that five bad things happen and wants to walk in joy than on another day? Well, if there's an injury, we have to look at how to bind it up. When you recognize where your needs are, maybe strength in the weak means you were undiscipled, right? When we recognize where our needs are, then we want a doctor. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to catch this contrast for just a minute. Pharisees and Sadducees were not coming to Jesus. Do you know why? Because in their own eyes, they were already righteous. Whores, tax collectors, the worst of society, the people that were thought the most lowly of, came to Jesus in droves. Do you know why? They recognized their great need for mercy. And they found a God who was willing to give them mercy. Man, is there anything honestly in the world that you need more right now than mercy? How is it that in this church two people answered that question? Is there anything that you need more than mercy? Look, if you have a hard time answering that, then I'll preach for the next 10 weeks on the justice of God and see if you can survive it. Our greatest need is human beings is mercy. Our second greatest need is His Spirit to move in us so that we do not repeat the mistakes that we've already been shown mercy for. He is the power over sin. There's a great contrast here. The contrast is all through the books of prophecy, but we see them right here in Matthew. A contrast between those that can look into the face of their sin, tear their clothes, and confess because they hate it. And those that conceal and hide it even if they're first hiding it from themselves. Wow. As you're looking at this list on the screen, can I, can I just quiz you for a second? Let's look at Ezekiel 34. When you look at that list on the left, do you think of someone else or do you put yourself in a category? There are some of you here who have not yet, this entire sermon, actually put yourself in one of the categories on the left. You've been looking at it and you immediately went to others. Oh yeah, that oh yeah, that guy's pretty sickly. Yep, her over there. Yep, she's weak. 
That one, yep, must be injured. Got some serious damaged goods there. Why don't we look at a list like that and go, Lord, in what areas in my life am I just incredibly weak? Lack of discipleship. I, I just, I don't even have the strength. It's embarrassing how little strength I have, Lord. God, Lord, I think I'm just sick. I don't know how I got this way, but something is just not functioning correctly inside of me. Why are we looking at a list like that and go, pastors, you're supposed to do that for everybody else. Better take care of that injured guy over there. That, that one's limping along, pastor. You better go over there. Why don't we look at this and go, God, this is what God proclaims, not only that we as pastors are supposed to do for the flock, but it's what God promises to do for us. I am weak. I am sick and in need of healing. If you don't ever get to this, you don't actually understand God's justice. You've only applied it incorrectly in your heart, and you will not love mercy. Why? Because you don't need it, apparently, according to your own thoughts. You needed it in the past, but not now. S somewhere in a distant past, long, long ago, I needed God's mercy. And then once I got over that one line, man, I'm good to go. Now I'm no longer weak in any area. I got saved yesterday, today. I am strong in everything. That's ridiculous. But let's be honest. How many of you did not put yourself in one of the Ezekiel 34 categories? Yeah. We're used to looking at it and thinking that it means something else for someone else instead of going, God, that's me. God, I, I need your mercy. Your justice is so right. We do not want to be a people who lowered the standard of God's justice. Not one iota. People don't like this idea. It's too much tension, so they want to lessen God's standard and say, we just need mercy. That's not what we're doing. We're holding the standard high and saying, because the standard is so high, we've got to have His mercy, and we've got to love it and want it for other people. Turn to Romans chapter 2. The more you aim for perfection, the more that's actually your aim, the more you want mercy. Amen. Romans chapter 2. We're going to focus on verse 4, but I want to read verse 3 for you to put it in the right kind of context. <laughs> the title of my chapter is God's Righteous Judgment, or the title of chapter in my Bible, rather. God's Righteous Judgment. Look at verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them. Everybody say them. 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 You know them. You know. Them people. Them peoples. When you pass judgment on them and yet you do the same thing, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? When was the last time you looked at someone and you saw them wallowing in sin, the justice of the Lord, you could see that it was going to fall on him? When was the last time you looked at somebody and said, God, would you show them kindness that it may lead to their repentance? God, would you show mercy on them? Which I want to be a person who loves mercy. Lord, I know that your judgment will come, and when it comes, it is right and it is true. But before it gets there, God, would you just have mercy on them so that I don't show contempt? There's their issue, right? But what about me? Am I going to show contempt on God's patience and his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience? Not realizing that the truth is, as we're brought to repentance, just because we get a glimpse of His mercy. Wow. 
we're about to go to Hebrews. Pastor Matt's going to lead us through that. But I, I'm just curious. This is an unusual kind of sermon. Nobody's jumping around. There's no homiletics to help you. We're just pure teaching and doing it from the heart. Who in here knows what Micah's response was to understanding the sin of his people? He stripped himself naked, and he fell on the ground, and he moaned and cried because the wound was grievous. Do you know it was still almost 200, 230 years before judgment came as far as where Micah lived? But he could see that it was coming. And he was so broken over what he knew this would do to his people. The heart of Christ is broken over sin. Yeah. Broken. Yeah. I think there are times that we have a tendency to get mad when people sin. How could they do that? I, I, I think that that shows our lack of understanding of our own life. Instead of being broken over what that's done to them, I think we get mad at what that might do to us. And that's, that's pretty wicked, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a totally understandable reaction <laughs> because we're a wicked people that are being redeemed. Amen. On the one hand, we are called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, we know good and well you won't make it out the week without staining that righteousness. We live in the tension between those two truths. And as we found out in these last few weeks, we might live in the tension between four, five, six, seven truths. I mean, you'll start to cry out for mercy the longer you walk with the Lord. Well, response to that cry, uh, let, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start in verse 15 and then go to 16. Say, there when you are there. There. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I don't know if any of you guys are like me. But when I am hurt, when I have done wrong, I withdraw. I begin to go in isolation. That can either be by saying nothing and just having a blank look on my face, which I'm very good at. Or I just kind of stay on the outside and do my own little thing in a, a solitary place. That is the worst response that you could ever have to God revealing a weakness that you have. What you're trying to do is mask Number one, the evidence of the weakness. And secondly, you are cutting yourself off from the very thing that God is trying to extend to you to heal you and bring you back to where you belong. You know, having an acknowledgement of God that sees the priest as someone who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses requires that we see our weaknesses in the first place. Because if we don't, we won't go to the priest because we'll think that he is there to only judge and condemn but that he is instead there to bring us to that point where we can confidently enter into the throne room of God and receive from him the very things that he is pointing to. Confidence is this. 
is that you are sure, you are absolutely certain that what has been promised you will be given to you. And you hold your head up high. You strut in such a way and you pursue it with a tenacity knowing that you will obtain that which God said that you could have. In this in light of this verse, it is mercy and it is grace, but only through him, the high priest. The Bible says many amazing things, doesn't it? Yeah. 66 books written by more than 40 authors over a period of 15 or 1600 years. And yet there's a scarlet thread that goes through the entire book. It's a beautiful book. Have you ever paid attention to the very last sentence of the book? I want to read it to you. Last sentence, last word in the book. The grace, say grace. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. That's the last word in the revelation of the unfolding of history. What does he wish to be with God's people? Grace. Grace that appears and teaches you to say no to unrighteousness. Grace that allows you the power of God to forgive. Grace that allows you to walk out of sin. Grace be with his people. The last line of the revelation of Jesus Christ is grace. Is that a good last word? We're going to move now into walking in humility as the third part. This is what the writings address in the Older Testament. And on the screen in Micah 6, 8, we talked about acting justly. This is both God's desire for you to be holy and his ability to make you holy. We talked about loving mercy, wanting to extend into the lives of other people the very same mercy God has extended into your life. We want to finish this message talking about walking in humility. Is that okay? Yes. Turn with us to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to read verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. It says this, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to live in right order between God and between with those that are around you. To make the right kind of peace. Not in a very Western kind of way where we mean the absence of hostility. Just keep things quiet. The Bible says make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. We want to get it right. If our relationship with the Lord is right in a vertical kind of sense, it should be reflected in our relationship with one another. If you can't get along with the people around you, if you don't have right relationships there, it should show you that there is a missing link, that something isn't quite right, is not in the perfect shalom yet between you and the Father, or it straightens out. It begins to smooth over and to put your other relationships in the right order. If you've been in our marriage teachings, you understand this. This is a week one kind of concept. But the Bible says to make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Why? Because we are not lowering the standard of God's justice. We're not. Not in any way. We're just saying, uh, yeah, we've got to have His mercy. And because we understand that, it makes us want to walk in a very humble way. <laughs> My wife didn't even like me when we were younger. Didn't even like me. Her dad didn't care for me at all. When we were teenagers, we were in high school, 
Yeah, and, and the main issue was <laughs> I, I just did not know how to walk humbly in any way. There was nothing about me that was humble. Nothing. At all. It, mess, it, it, it almost damaged the, the most precious relationship outside of my relationship with Christ that I have. Why? Because I had to learn how to walk humbly, and this is what it's saying here. We've got to be holy. We've got to walk humbly so that we can see God. We can see clearly what, what He is all about. Amen? Amen. In 1 John 1, nine, if you don't mind turning there, that's, this is something that we, we want to emphasize. We are not lowering the standard. We will never lower the standard. You don't bring the standard down to the men. You bring the men up to the standard. Can y'all tell that we're a church that cares very much about holiness? Yes. And there are some essential truths in the word that cannot be denied. And when we do, if we miss it even a little bit, then we've used the standard of God in a way that is not pleasing to him. In 1 John 1, 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, this is getting back to our problem that we were demonstrating earlier throughout, throughout the message so far. If you really understand God's justice, if you're trying to act justly, you will understand that there is a need for you to confess your sins. But we know that in a conceptual way. We don't always know it in a, in a real-life kind of way. When, when we can look at a list on the left and realize and not even, think, not even think to apply it to us, if we can read through a passage like Psalm 19 and say, yeah, um, we've got these hidden things, these, these things that we're blind to, then we just want to, then it completely controls us. We must confess our sins. We must confess to the Lord. Problem is, as many of us don't realize that we need to. We're blinded. We've deceived ourselves. <laughs> Guys, we, we as three pastors, we sit here and sometimes we have such a, a good fellowship, relationship with each other. We put ourselves in a little bit in a, in a caricaturized version sometimes, Right? Well, Wade, he's this one. Matt, Matt's the good-looking one. Eric's the one with the good-looking beard. I mean, you know, what, we, we, kind of, we kind of categorize ourselves in an overly simplistic fashion. To think that all three of us are men that do not need to confess our sins before the Lord is a ridiculous thought. <laughs> I can assure you, whatever my GPA was 100 years ago when I was in some school somewhere, has nothing to do with whether the fact that I need to confess or not. I can assure you that I do. I can assure you I am trying with all my might to find what, what it's like to actually act justly. God, Lord, I'm trying to fall in love with, with, with your mercy. And I've got to walk humbly. I, that's easy for me to do is sit here before you today and say, you don't know how many times I have to go before the Lord and say, God, God, I missed it again. I really, I was trying really hard. This wasn't a lack of effort. I just missed you because your standard is perfect. And for myself, I don't want to lower it and say it was okay. Lord, I missed it. God, would you forgive me? Because I missed it. I sinned. I've got wicked things that are still in me, Lord. And I'm, I'm going to conquer these things. 
But if we look at a, at a passage like 1 John 1, 9, and if we confess our sins, what does it say? He's faithful and just. Can I tell you that most of us oscillate back and forth between we want to confess our sins and then stay in the confession and forget that He's faithful to forgive? Our focus only on His faithfulness that we really don't need to confess because He's going to kind of take care of it anyway? If you walk through and understand that God is just and that we will all be blistered unless we follow it correctly and He's a God who loves mercy and extends it to us regularly, all that we have to do is be honest with Him and confess with the trueness, with the purity that says, I don't even know quite all the ways that I just got that wrong, Lord. I'm not even sure that I can probably wrap my mind around how many ways I just missed that. But if I don't confess, then I don't get your mercy. I only stand in your justice. That, you're, that we are supposed to act justly. We're supposed to love mercy. And we've got to walk humbly with Him or we won't be able to make it. If you're not in a regular attitude of confessing, there are so many things. God, pick any number of days. Last month? Last week? There are so many things that I would love to, 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 to say... Oh, man, I, I missed that, Lord. I'm going to go to the Lord and confess every single one of them, every time. I'm going to wear him out by my confession. Be like, yep, it's me again, Lord. So that I may walk humbly, not become a big pile of tears on the floor. That's, the, that's what gets us to there, but then we've got to stand up. You know why? Because if we confess, he is faithful and just. Oh, there it is again. He's faithful. He's going to show His mercy to us. And He's just. And He will forgive us and purify us. Why? So we can carry on with what He's telling us to do. Amen? The full force of church discipline is for one people group. Period. Those that will not acknowledge their sin and will not turn away from it. And if they make it to the body of Christ, standing in front of the body of Christ and will not acknowledge their sin and turn away from it, the force of church discipline is so strong that you're not allowed to have them around. Is that incredible? When people confess their sin, it's not supposed to be hung around their neck. Period. Period. It's supposed to be forgiven. I'm just going to step out and, and say it very, very bluntly. Here recently, we had sin that was confessed that we hung around somebody's neck. It shouldn't be that way. I want to apologize to you as a church because what that does is it sets the example that says the next person that confesses, we might hang it around your neck. When sin is confessed and turned away from, all of us would be challenging the blood of Christ to stand up and expose and acknowledge that. The weight of Scripture is so abundantly clear in hindsight. If somebody will not listen to you, you go get a brother. If they will not listen to the brother, you bring it before the church if they will not listen to the church. So what has happened prior? They have not listened to you individually. They have not listened to you with the brother. And they have failed to listen to the entire church. Then you publicly expose it. 
Church, we don't want to, we don't want to gloss over sin. And you know what else we don't want to do? We don't want to put a stick in the hand of the enemy to kill our youth. We don't want to do that. We also don't want an environment that is prosecutorial. What we want is for you to be able to come and say, I'm blowing it and I need help in this area. Because we want the weak strengthened. We want those who are sick healed. Those who are injured, bind it up. We want those that have strayed to be brought back. We want to search for the lost. We're in perfect agreement that God has been steering the events of our church. We're very, very thankful for it. it it's been excellent, amazing even. And one of the things that is very, very difficult is so often you know perfectly what you should do a month after you're in the situation. And you don't know perfectly what you should do when you're facing it. Are you familiar with the fog of war? Yes. I want to show you a scripture that is not understood. And I want to show it to you because I think you may have some mercy for the men that were leading Israel after you hear it. This is Matthew 23. And it's verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Isn't that how we tend to think of them? You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Hey, does that mean dill, mint, and cumin are unimportant? It means that they improperly weighted something, doesn't it? Isn't that what it says? But you have neglected the more important matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, both are important, yeah? You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. How many of you, when you hear that, think how stupid that they could swallow a camel? Yeah, you're not going to answer me now, are you? As if a gnat is no big deal. I mean, it's just a gnat. Do you know that somebody went out and planted seed in the earth? They had to wait for that vine to grow. They had to wait for a grape to be produced. They then had to pick those grapes, had to uh, process them, and they have a vat of wine. And if a single mat gets into that vat of wine, all of that work is for nothing because it's unclean. You can't have a, a, a fly in your ointment and you can't have a gnat in your wine they are not wrong to strain at the fly they were wrong to miss the camel does that make sense now what may not come to you immediately is that a gnat is the smallest unclean animal in the bible smallest be the easiest to miss they're doing a good job to catch that thing and a camel is the largest unclean animal in the Bible as far as to eat. Any of, among things that are eaten among men, the gnat would be the smallest way to break kosher and the camel would be the largest way to break kosher. The point of the parable is not that these stupid people shouldn't have been straining gnats. They should have been looking at camels. It's that you can't miss either one or you're guilty. Do you have some mercy for how difficult it is to act justly? Oh, man. We talk about a tension between two truths. You know, we've been joking lately. We haven't found the chapter of the Bible that clearly addresses this situation. 
with these nine variables in it. It is very, very difficult to know what to do, but we know one thing. We know that we are committed to acting justly. We know that no matter what happens, mercy is going to define who we are here. And we're going to walk humbly enough to look back in retrospect and go, God bless what we did, and I'm very thankful for that. And, you know, next time I think I'm going to do that a little differently. Because in an environment where people confess sin, we want them to be freed from sin. There are no scarlet letters in this church. Period. If we run into the man that is confessing sin tritely, confessing it flippantly, like, yeah, I did it, so what? That's an entirely different scenario. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to have confidence when you answer an altar call and you pray with somebody that we are not then going to post that on Facebook. Would you like confidence in that area or would you like to wonder whether or not everything... How many of you have known the Stevens family for more than five years? Yeah, keep your hands up for a minute. Think back to the dinners that we've had with each other. Think back to the meetings in the pastor's office we've had with each other. Your hand getting heavy? Not nearly as heavy as your life would become if I began to post everything that I knew God had forgiven you of. See, we're not going to do that. Not, not now, not ever. You know what we are? We're men who have been brought from death to life. Amen. That's what we are. You know when we will bring you, you can put your hands down, when we will bring you here and risk turning you over to the devil? When you're in ongoing sin that you refuse to stop and we have no other choice. If you put us in that situation, we will do that because we want to save your life. And we've seen lives saved just like that. I remember not so long ago, a young man that we love very much was about to make a terrible mistake. And the elders in this church showed such wisdom. We stood up and challenged it publicly until the man was broken by the faulty thinking that he had. You know what he is today? Married, thriving, a minister. You know what it would be if we didn't have the courage to do that? God only knows. But when we think of him, you know what we think of? The married man on his way to ministry. Yeah. Oh, come on, church. How many of you want to live in an environment that is about forgiveness and mercy? Yeah. yeah. I need it. Amen. I need it. Every family in here is going to get that from the other families in here. Yeah. Otherwise, we have no hope. The body of Christ will become cannibals otherwise. We eat each other alive. Uh, can I tell you that the Stevens have been fighting through our own weakness? We've been fighting through injury. We've been fighting through those things. And the devil is effective all by himself. He does not need any help in that regard. Say, I'm committed to forgive. I'm committed to forgive. I'm committed to mercy. I'm committed to mercy. I'm going to act justly. I'm going to act justly. I'm going to love mercy. I'm going to love mercy. Now, church, the really mature step for all of us, and you see us working this out regularly, we're going to be humble enough to both acknowledge that the Lord does what he wants to do. And now that we know what we know, we're going to, we're going to move differently, right? That's what humility is. It's a kind of fluidity that looks at your life with sobriety and says, Lord, what do you want of me today? Yesterday, I know what you wanted. I got some of it right and some wrong. What do you want today? Because I want to walk with you in the future. Amen. That's 
That's what that is for. Amen? Amen. Matthew, what's James say? James chapter 1. Let's go there. James chapter 1, and let's go to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Who in this room would put themselves in that category of being in a position of lacking wisdom? Absolutely here. Uh, let me just say, the, uh, the reference that Pastor Eric was making earlier and taking the apology of the way that we administer church discipline, uh, he is not alone. In fact, that rests squarely on my shoulders and on Wade's as well. We missed a step in administering this and should have done it a lot differently, leaving room for mercy to be extended in a greater depth. So as a pastor of this church, I want to be a man and stand up to it and say I apologize to you guys and before the Lord for that. Amen. Me as well. That's a, uh, I can assure you that we've been talking about this. We've been praying about these things. Uh, we love each and every one of you as, a, as families here. We love, love, love the Stevens family. We love every other family that's here in this church. And it is important to us that, uh, that we be able to walk rightly with the Lord. Uh, we make no excuses about anything. We say that we, now knowing what we know now, we would go forward and we would emphasize, we would focus on, we would glorify, we would exalt in every way possible that we could love mercy so that we can all walk humbly with the Lord. This is something that we do, uh, and you're not going to, you're going to be able to see it in our actions going forward, that we want to be a group of people who hold all three of these with equal veracity, acting justly that we will love mercy, and that we will walk humbly. And this is, a, this is as James mentions, if any of you lack wisdom, amen. Uh, we're a group of people. We're a family here. This is, these aren't the right things to do if you're trying to keep a congregation at arm's length from you and, and never acknowledge what's going on inside of your own mind and your own heart. We're saying, yeah, not only do we want to help you be strengthened, but we need to be strengthened at times as well. Not only do we want to see you uh, to be healed when you're sick, there are places there are sick in us that we are constantly asking and needing help from the Lord. We're injured as well. We've got areas and thoughts that may be strayed as well. We're, we, are, we are the list on the left as much as we are the ones to help you with your list that's on the left. Amen? Amen. And that's what today is. When we're talking battlefield update, and we are at a close so you can promise your gluteus maximus that it will survive the service when we're talking battlefield update it's messy it's difficult our our decisions are often imperfect that's not what we're trusting in we're relying upon our king he is perfect his decisions are perfect and here's the thing in all things he works together for the good of those that love him you know why, as a Christian, you can't get hung up on two weeks ago something was done perfectly or maybe with 98% proficiency and not perfectly? 
Do you know why you can't get hung up on that? Because God is able to use that tiny little bit to steer you in entirely new ways. Look, we serve a God who is so big that between these two turkey trips, come on, man, two turkey trips, we're talking February and March and now in June, that's a short time between those two turkey trips. All of the fury of hell has been unleashed on this church. And do you know what? We're standing. We're standing together. We've never been more united. We've never been more in love, our families, with each other. It's been tested to the absolute maximum. And do you know what? We're a threefold cord that cannot be broken. Amen. Do you know what that means? That means that mercy is triumphing. That means that we are learning to act justly. It means that humility to examine our actions in retrospect keep us walking rightly with God in the future. Do you want to walk rightly with the Lord? Yes. You will scarcely ever find people who stand on a stage and admit to error. But that's not life-changing ministries. We own our actions and we are proud that we are striving to follow the Lord with all of our hearts. We are striving. It's a fight. Amen? Amen. There's a place that we would like to end this message. I had intended to read to you out of Revelation, and I'm not going to do it. Let me just say that in this fight, it takes patient endurance on the part of the saints. Is anybody in here seriously contest that? I don't think so. So Pastor Wade is going to read to us from Ezekiel 34. We started in Ezekiel. We went to Micah. I'd like to finish with the fruits of Ezekiel 34. And we'll bring our message to a close. But here's where it stops being about us and starts being about you. Because we've been using our lives to display something for your benefit. We held ourselves up as positive and negative examples in the hope that you could look into the Word and see your own life. And you're going to get that opportunity now. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 22. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forests in safety. I will bless them in places and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. Oh man. Slavery broken. You know the fastest way to make yourself a slave as a Christian? Have sin in your life that nobody knows about. Because every success will be tempered by that. Every single time you do anything that you think is good, the devil will be right there saying, but you know what? If they knew this. Slavery comes from hidden sin. Secondly, crops produced. Oh man, who doesn't want to have your life mean something? Parents are living that their children would do better than they did. Churches should exist that the congregation outgrows them in every way. We are drinking of the rain and we want crops in this place. Do you want to be fruitful? Yes. Sin kills fruitfulness. Showers of blessing. Number five. 
The way you get crops is to live in a way that God will bless. And if you live in a way that He will bless, nothing can keep you from being fruitful. Rid us of beast. You know what a beast is? Is that part of your fleshly nature you can't get away from. It's the one that is always there hunting you, waiting for a weak moment so that you live according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. God is able to put the sword of the word of God to that beast. How many of you, when you got born again, some things went away immediately? Other things, not so much. That battle keeps us walking in humility, loving mercy, but we want the justice of God. Let's put the beast to death today. There is one shepherd over this flock, and it's not Pastor Matthew. It's not Pastor Wade, and it is not Pastor Eric. Jesus Christ owns this church. We work for him. He becomes the one shepherd when we work in unity, submitting to one another out of love. We have, we will, and we will continue to. If there is an issue between you and any other person in this church... Number two on the list was judge between the sheep. The living God will show you when you need to leave the altar and go get something right with someone. Don't live with it. Don't explain it away. Do it immediately because what's at stake is the salvation of the flock. If we do Ezekiel 34 correctly, if we do Micah 6, 8 correctly, the whole flock is saved. There are no issues between sheep. The one shepherd above us is glorified. The beasts have been put to death. There are showers of blessing. The crops are growing. And slavery has been broken. Stand to your feet.